This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. And this is Richard Tohoka. Hi, Richard. It's great to have you on the podcast. This episode, we have a wonderful opportunity to talk to the originator, the creator of Fringeworthy the Game. And he's going to give us his perspective from the god of gaming himself as far as Fringeworthy is concerned. Not the god of gaming. <laughs> great guru, maybe, but okay, not great, the god. All right, the great guru of gaming. Richard Taholka is based out of TriTech Games. He's the owner, sole proprietor. He is out of Michigan, Detroit, Michigan. He has been very kind to join us here on Skype for our podcast. We're going to go straight to the questions. Is that all right, Richard? Please waste my time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, so Fringeworthy. When was Fringeworthy first published, and what kind of a product launch did you do? Fringeworthy first came out in 1983. A lot of people think it was 85, but actually it came out in 83. came out, I believe, if I remember right, at Origins. It was Greenfield Distributing, gave us a quarter of a table. We showed the game, and people were pretty amazed. They had never seen anything like it or the concept. So this actually was an original concept. Nobody had ever done an interdimensional exploration game before. No, we were the first. I think TriTech was the first on at least three different concepts back in the uh, early 80s. So where did the original idea for Fringeworthy come from? Nightmares. Oh, come on, Richard. Being one of his original players, I'll point to the time bagel. Now, now, hold on. If we go back even a little farther, don't forget that we worked on the Morrow Project. That's true. And the Morrow Project, we were we actually did two Fringeworthy test games while we were working on the Morrow Project. That's true. Of course, my characters never survived a Morrow Project playtest until I actually played under Richard. Under Kevin Dockery, they always died. <laughs> well, that was Kevin's job. Yeah. <laughs> the idea was pretty much a short story idea based off of dreams. But I was told from John that you actually had like a, a magic donut or a time bagel that was in one of your D&D dungeons. Back in the, again, the late 70s, we had a, a D&D type campaign. We did have a time portal up on the first level. The players really liked the time portal. Yep. They were using it a lot. In fact, the rest of the game was never really played. They just kept going through the time portal to different times and eras and adventures and that kind of thing. It was so much easier for them. And finally, they blew up the room and caved it in. We were sort of led to that, though, weren't we? <laughs> well, not really. There, were, there was an awful lot there. There were 26 levels to that game, and they explored three of them over four years. <clears throat> there was a path worn to the time bagel. <laughs> oh, literally. <laughs> the French system... When you developed that, where did you get the idea for pathways and, and portals? And instead of, you know, like going up to the ring and punching in an address and going somewhere particular, how did you come up with this whole like network or this, this matrix of portal and pathway and then, you know, system and alternates and all that? Where did all that come from? It was just simple engineering. Portal to portal is one thing, but when you start getting choices of portals and pathways and more portals and more platforms. It's a little more fun. There's a lot more there. It also adds to the ambience of the game. Right. Was there an element of game balance involved in that decision, like to keep people from just jumping from world to world and time to time and jumping back and forth? I'm going to go to the space world and then go to the you know, D&D type world and take them all over. Was there, was there any of that involved in the design? I firmly believe in play balance. Play balance is very important to a game. 
you want to provide a good adventure for your players, but you also don't want your players running roughshod across, you know, 100 worlds. But then right. again, they do anyway. <laughs> right. Now, that's that's what I thought. I thought it was a great balancing tool to keep people from going out of control. If you had to travel all that distance, you couldn't just run around and do whatever you wanted to do. You, there were limiting factors, and that was intentional. The, the limiting factors were the same thing with the electricity uh, going through with the inability of nuclear weapons to function, especially the inability of nuclear weapons to function. Right. Things like that, just the little details. Richard, when I was playing, I always thought that the whole point of it was to isolate the players. I mean, I should say the player characters from their originating base. They went through, they were on their own. They could go back to IDET, uh, to Hatsumi base, but it was a difficult thing to do. They really had to make sure they had what they needed when they left. They had to think about what the mission involved before they went anywhere. I always thought that was the idea of doing it separate like that. It made them think. That's Again, Bruce, you're absolutely right. Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought on the second playtest I was in, we'd walk through the portal and bang, we were there on that world with Schmerch. Nope, we always use the platforms. Okay. I can't remember if we had to go two platforms or was it just, just the one platform? You went from the Earth platform and you went to the alternate platform. Okay. And that's where you found the first world. At that time, you actually already had the multiple platform structure already set down. The basic structure really hasn't changed much since the game was created. All right. Cool. Wait, so, Richard, uh, why were the portals on Earth Prime so isolated? Why was the first one discovered in Antarctic rather than the one in Richardson Mountains or the one in the Soviet Union or even the one on Easter Island? Why that one? Pure by chance. And the fact that if you want to put a base on a world and you don't quite want the inhabitants to know what you're doing, you don't put it in the middle of a major city. You tuck it away. And don't forget that Antarctica was actually a lot warmer some time ago. Yeah, but that was like millions of years ago. <laughs> well, give or take a few. So you're saying that originally Hatsumi Base was established because it was a more temperate climate there? A little more temperate climate. Okay. But the fact that uh, in the game, as you've designed it, they discovered the portal in Arctic. You just flipped a coin and that was the one you came up with? The idea was to isolate the area so it was tough to get to. Again, like the platforms and the portals. So it's like another game balancing type of aspect. Keep the players from being able to run over everything and go crazy. You couldn't shove a lot of equipment through and everything from, you know from the U.S., that kind of right. thing, or from Russia or from whenever, wherever. Right. Again, I think another great balancing tool to keep the, the game interesting. You know, a game that's too easy is not interesting. I like I like the challenge, having to think ahead and having to, to plan and make sacrifices. Since I was on Team 2, who was the original playtester? And, and also about the real Ed Powers. Ooh, considering I don't know even if I have permission to use his name right now, considering he's in military intelligence. <laughs> the original Ed Powers was one of the players named Ken, who was a terrific, terrific player. John was one of the first uh, players in the first couple games we ran. So I remember, John, the blunderbuss and the dog sled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which uh, basically were turned out to save the party. Very unusual. Ken was Ted Powers. He was very much Ed Powers. Yeah. Right after uh, he played in the games, a couple, three, four years, he went into the military and he stayed. He's somewhere in Washington with his family now. Since Fringeworthy is a kind of eclectic team composition, what was the original team makeup? What were the original careers of the so-called PCs? I think there was a housewife. There was a, <laughs> a pair of military people. There was a shopkeeper. There was a, a Diderot racer. I think it was John. Well, he was as more survivalist than anything else. Survivalist. And uh, just some miscellaneous <laughs> careers. So even back then, John was min-maxing. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> if you want to call it that. I, I totally forsook any form of high advanced technology. I was afraid that the portals would shut down behind us and would be abandoned wherever you were. So I took no technology that couldn't be maintained by myself. 
and you've never seen what happens to a lesser Meller when you hit it with a blunderbuss. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. We talked about the negating electricity and nuclear material, and I guess magnetism, but could you go into just a little bit more detail on to the reasoning for that? For the magnetism and everything else, that when you go through, the portal's itself a phenomenal energy signature. You've got to go through something that's breaking space and time, making holes through quantum space. So the, more than likely, you really don't want anything powered going through it to the main system. And you really don't want to touch off nukes on the fringe path. No, not at all. The repair crews are a long way away. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Richard, when we did the backstory, we said that the reason that they damped down all this stuff was so Commonwealth worlds and client worlds connected to the fringe paths, they weren't going to be able to conduct warfare between them. That was a problem in the early days of the war. That actually is a very good explanation. It does limit going out to the pathways. But you can't forget that the pathways are engineering tunnels for the bigger system. They're Jeffrey's tubes. Literally. Question from, from another person about what happens if I had a magnetic bottle full of, say, a kilogram of antimatter and I tried going through the portal. Will it let me go through? What would happen? In I would think that the, the magnetism ends and the antimatter turns into normal matter. Oh, wow. So it basically reverses all the quarks, now positive quarks instead of negative quarks. And probably makes the portal glow like you wouldn't believe. That's a lot of energy. Yeah. yeah. That's an interesting answer. <laughs> Early on, you told me that the construction of the portal involves the energy from two black holes and a neutron star. One of the original ideas was they were finding stars that had no planetary systems, encasing them and squeezing them for the materials. During the design team decided to explain how the gravity was being created on the platforms. Instead of having a gravity generator, we simply say it's basically like a TARDIS inside the platform. It's up 8,000 miles thick on the inside and only so thick on the outside. And that's how you get 1G on the platform. <laughs> That's actually, John, you're, you're real close. We had one of the games, and I think it, there was a tanker truck full of nitroglycerin that was brought through very gently, and it was detonated to stop something. They actually fractured a hole in the platform, which began to heal. They looked down, and they saw it was like looking down forever into crystals and lines and all sorts of things. So the fringe paths actually can be damaged, and they heal they themselves. They can be damaged, and they will heal. Think of the fringe path system as a very large AI system. Right. It's it's smart. Oh, yeah. But it's not self-aware. Um, it might be slightly self-aware. Okay. Before this edition, the Fringeworthy game was always placed 20 years in the future in a fairly idyllic future. Mm -hmm. Do you really believe that the future will be like that, or was it just a game convention to allow hand-waving about details such as the ASA and other major changes? Back in the 70s, we had sort of hoped that things would be much different than they are today. We were hoping that there would be a lot of international cooperation, that basically the finding of another alien species and other worlds and other histories would really help humanity in understanding itself. Of course, that was purely science fiction. As of today, the world is not the same place that we were imagining 20 years ago. Do you think that the new version of the game is therefore grittier? It, it, it's grittier. It reflects a lot more of what the times are now, even though it is still very positive. Now, the ASA wasn't part of the original release. There were quite a number of things we've added over the years. Joseph Campbell, if you've ever read his books, which are wonderful for game designers... You always really, in a story, you need an antagonist. Like in the original Faster Than Light, we didn't have antagonists. In Fringeworthy, we only had really the Meller. And if you add a little more to it, the game becomes a little more exciting. There's a little more out there. Plus, it, I would imagine it's hard to sell new versions and update things without putting something new into it anyway. As, as we see over the years... When it comes to uh, science fiction, the, it always reflects a lot of what's going on today, or, or what we think today is going to, what tomorrow is going to be like today. So I can see where where it would have gone from more idyllic future to a more gritty future. That's pretty much what you're saying, right, Rich? Yes.
Fringeworthy for a science fiction game seems a bit pulpish. Was that intentional? What is the genre you're going to go for today in any new game you design? John, define pulpish. Pul- yeah, because pulpish now these days is, is really has spread out there. I mean, we're talking... 1950s, 1940s, 19... You know, that kind of thing. Um, the Flash Gordon type of pulpish. I wrote the question, so uh, perhaps I should say it was where you've got this larger than life bad guys. You have these situations you go into that only you can solve. You've got this really strange and mysterious place to explore, and you keep finding these really unusual characters on it. Speaking of the fringe paths and some of the worlds that you might be going to. Okay. You also have super science in the background and abandoned Tamelan worlds. And very enigmatic wise men, a.k.a. Tamelan. Again, read Joseph Campbell. (laughs) That's what makes a good game. You need something like that. If the game was just, let's go out and see a lot of dead worlds, people would be bored to death. It would be, you think of a good term for this, uh, let's explore farm world. You know, basically, it's Empty Earth number 2055. Yep. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do today? Gophers. We found gophers. No, gophers the size of Mack trucks. That's different. Gophers with handguns. <laughs> there you go. Wait, now hang on. Now you're yeah. making it pulpish. Yes, indeed I am. <laughs> <laughs> gophers so, that turn into millers and charge at you. Right. As long as you have a blunderbuss. That are a 50 cal machine gun set at about, about a foot off the ground. <laughs> so the second part of the question, Richard, are you actually aiming for a particular genre with the Fringeworthy game, or is it truly evenly cross-genre? I think it's pretty much evenly cross-genre. We don't want to make it too pulpish. If we want to go pulpish, then we can go hardwired hinterland, that kind of thing. Hardwired hinterland... Really, is sort of like Fringery, only you just have to fly an airplane to another world. Somebody just described it as Star Trek with DC-3s. All right. When I first heard of Fringeworthy, when you came to my house uh, and showed me some of the galleys, or at least some of the original paste-ups of the Fringeworthy games way back in MunchCon 2, I was really clueless about the game. I kept asking you about it, and you were very mysterious. And even when the game came out, I still didn't know what it was about until I actually was at a convention, you demoed it. And and once I saw that, oh, we're going through a portal, we're going to another world, we're exploring an alternate Earth. Okay, now I understand. So did this kind of thing work against the success of the game? Has more popular science fiction shows on television been any aid at all in making Fringeworthy a more understandable concept? Back in those days... There were no post-Holocaust games. There was only D&D. There were no portals to other worlds. There were only a couple of space games that had just come out. And literally, there wasn't any market there for anything beyond Dungeons & Dragons. People had to scratch their heads a little bit and look at the game and go, cool, this is a whole new concept. It's, It's like a light goes on, a light bulb goes on over their heads. As far as popular culture goes... I think it's pretty astonishing. We've had the RPGs out an average of four to five years before something has hit popular media and really expounded on that kind of concept. So we've been kind of a bellwether for a number of years. You have certain vampire hunter shows and, and demon hunting mm-hmm. shows and such long, first, long after uh, Bureau 13. Bureau 13 was the first modern supernatural game. We had the first Lost Across the Galaxy game before Star Trek Voyager. That was three, about three years before Voyager came out, which was Incursion. Right. In Fringeworthy, of course, uh, we were pretty sure it spawned an entire genre of popular culture. It reminds me of a quote I heard that, that I've always thought was very interesting. If you have a truly original idea, you don't have to worry about anybody stealing it because you'll have to cram it down their throats. I think that's the reverse with Hollywood. If Hollywood sees any kind of a good idea, it's it's theirs. Well, I was saying about the general public, you know, they need Hollywood to cram it down their throats, to give it to them in full color with actors and a huge budget and special graphics and put it on a big crappy screen. Crappy scripts. Oh. Right, and crappy scripts. But, but, but weekly reinforcement. 
Right. But that's that's what you need to get a truly brand new original idea into the public. You can't just come out with a book and go, here you go, if, if it's like really original. Now we're seeing actually Hollywood doing a lot better. The uh, – oh, what is the the new TV show with the, the Flash Forward? Yeah. Which was a pretty good novel. We met the uh, author here in uh, Michigan. He's in Canada, not too far from us. And they made a show out of it. And it's the show is actually in many ways more exciting than the book is. Huh. The book is a lot of hard science and a lot of tracking down exactly what happened and why. But the show has gone off on a completely different angle and is fascinating. Yeah, I'll have to catch on Hulu because unfortunately I didn't catch it when it first came out. It's well worth seeing. It's it's surprisingly worth seeing. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so back before the split of the original TriTech partners, you wanted to concentrate on FTL 2448, and the others wanted to concentrate on Bureau 13. Why wasn't Fringeworthy a primary choice at that time? The problem was we had three different games that came out, and, and the fourth one, which was in the wings. And it's hard seeing what is popular and what sells. I wanted to actually work on Fringeworthy. I also wanted to work on FTL, and I wanted to work on Bureau 13. And unfortunately, I couldn't split myself that far. I had to do piece by piece. So you'll notice that every every couple of years we do a number of bureau modules, and then we do some fringeworthy material. And one of these days we'll get around to doing a much bigger FTL book. Right now it's at 500 pages, and I figure the next one will be about 900. And maybe some incursion. And maybe some incursion, but we've got to get that out. That'll be the Savage Worlds edition, which hopefully will be next year. And Beach Bunny Bimbos with yep. blasters? I don't think so. Oh, darn. Oh, come on. That's Yeah, that's Macho, macho and Winning with guns. with guns. D20 version of that. All right, that's it. We, we're going to have to do a D20 version of Beach Bunny Bimbos with blasters. No, no, Savage Worlds. I, I just, oh, I, Savage I'm Worlds, just, pardon me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The edges are going to be epic. I, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, first of all, let me, let's, let's get the, the first three new uh, Incursion and Fringeworthy and Bureau 13 done into Savage Worlds. Right. Because FT- FTL, I think, is going to be a, a version that's going to have two versions that come out at the same time. A generic version and a Savage Worlds version, which I'd like to do because we can actually work between using a lot of the same material, I hope. In the last year, because of somebody named Melody Natcher, I, we've gotten much more ambitious. It sounds to me like what your business plan currently is, Richard, is you want to come out with three different versions of each game. You want the D20 version, which is actually D20 Modern. You want the Savage World version, and you also want what you call the D0 or the systemless version. Right. And But we also still have the, the old versions are still going. The people still really want the old TriTech versions. You got nothing against selling stuff that's already been written. <laughs> it's a lot easier to edit that. <laughs> so, Richard, how far has Fringe really changed from your original concept? The change, there haven't been a lot of changes, but a lot more material and a lot more development. It's gotten grittier. There's a lot more races, people to work with. Basically, there's a lot more material to make the game fun. In this edition, you introduced three new races, the Pang, the Pangborn, the... Not Pangborn, that's a science fiction writer. The Pangolisk, the Old Men, and the Brupians. And what sort of effect do you expect to see the, them having on existing Fringeworthy campaigns? Uh, probably not a lot. The Old Men are out there, and they're basically, they're, they're again, they're wise old men who are out on the fringe paths. We have the, the Brupians who are another race entirely, and the Pangolisk. But if you look at them, you kind of get the impression maybe that they're Tyrellian constructs. And more than likely, we, we think that the uh, the Brupians are Tyrellian tree seeds that are alive before they eventually root and become home trees. Hey, you heard this that here, they, folks. <laughs> and you, this is why they, go for, they change right. color from green to purple. When they turn purple, they're getting ready to probably to seed. So if you see one, make sure you have some nice loamy soil for it to, to sit into and start growing. If they take to you and follow you around a lot, eventually you'll have to find a place where you're going to want to live. So when they get old, what do you say? Oh, I'm getting old. I'm going to seed. <laughs> Pretty good. No, they, they go bloop. <laughs> which, which means that Tremelorin technology is actually coming back. Now, the old men, 
do they really walk the pathways or do they know tricks to get around faster on the pathways? Do they really want to walk those 49 miles? There are probably a lot of things out there and tricks that they know that they're not talking about. But more than likely, they just enjoy a good walk. I was surprised that they didn't have like a razor or something, you know, so they could just roll on the fringe pads at a good 15 miles an hour without any real effort at all. No, they walk. Or they catch rides. So you have an old man walking down the platform and he sees a bunch of fringe pirates coming along. What does he do? Probably hides. Or they probably look at him and go, maybe we don't want to play with him. My idea was he just simply does a little slip to, to the bottom side of the fringe pass and they don't know he's there. It's only twilight lighting on the fringe pass. It's easy to miss somebody. We haven't explored too much. I haven't run Fringeworthy in a while, though we haven't brought the old men in really in my games to see what happens. So folks out there, you know, bring some old men along and let us know how they play. Listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. How many countries have folks who play Fringeworthy? Like, how many places do you know of that Fringeworthy has been sold or you've gotten emails from people asking you questions and such? All the way across anywhere that speaks English. Brazil. Brazil was a hotbed of activity for a while. We have quite a few people who are playing the games in Iraq. We just sent a crate of stuff out free to a group of soldiers up at Camp Sykes. We've got Europe, Germany, a lot of England, uh, like I said, New Zealand, Australia, a few out of Italy, and then every once in a while we'll get somewhere, something out of somewhere that's completely just like, what? You know, Tanatuva, you know, that kind of thing. Gamers, they're definitely the people there are gamers and they're curious. Yeah, no, cause I noticed we were looking through at the... Uh... Uh, origins for people who are subscribing to our podcast. We see some folks from China who have logged in. So it must be Hong More Kong. More than likely I Hong bet. Kong. But, and uh, the, the idea, we like I said, Brazil was was quite a hotbed of activity for uh, both Fringeworthy and for Faster Than Light, FTL. I think they sent me a couple of books that were dedicated to us that I still can't read. Now, if this isn't one of the questions that was, that was listed, so I'm, I'm kind of sidelining you with this a little bit, so... You take your time. Um, would you ever consider if you could have, if you could get a translated version, like if you could, if you had, there was somebody who offered to translate it for you, would you ever consider releasing a foreign edition, a foreign Absolutely. language edition? In fact, we have a really good individual out of Hungary who is very excited, and it may take him another two or three years. He wants to do Fringeworthy, he wants to do Bureau 13, and he wants to do Incursion in Hungarian. For our podcast, we have people who are primarily in the United States, that's 71%, but we also have France, Germany, Canada, Hong Kong, and then others. And I know that some uh, that we get them from the Republic of China, we also get it from South Korea. All right. The, the thing right now is gaming is finally hitting Eastern Europe. It's hitting pretty well, and the, the Dungeons & Dragons rolled through five to ten years ago and sort of got going. I guess the, the officials there when the communism really fell have turned a, a blind eye to gaming. And the gamers in Eastern Europe are picking up on what we were doing 20 years ago, but they're doing it with a much better technology and a much better grasp of what's going on. They're, they're real excited about it. I was very surprised at the, the audience we got for Fringeworthy that came out of uh, Hungary. That's excellent to get that kind of exposure all over. Years ago, we, we saw the uh, copies like Call of Cthulhu in German with the dimensional Schumpflers. <laughs> Wonderful books. I remember you, you talked about the fellow down in Brazil who actually told you the right way to pronounce Oximo. Yep. And, uh, for, you know, no, 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 not Franco. Francesco, you have to do this Portuguese. <laughs> so. Yes. Richard, I downloaded the third edition of Fringeworthy from the Internet using BitTorrent. Yeah. So it, it's an illegal copy. I'm not very happy with that. Now, which, which third edition are you talking about? Are you talking about the, the 92 book? Spiral Bound. Okay. And I wish there was a way to stop this, but really they shouldn't be, this shouldn't be allowed. Actually, that's, that's second edition. You're right. Yeah, so. second edition. Spiral Bound was the second edition. It wasn't the one that in, in 1992. It was the one before that. 
there was the first edition, which is out on PDF. The second edition, which is out on PDF. The third edition, which never came out, but, but actually we have still a few copies of it. And then the actual the fourth edition was the 92 edition. And then we did the D20 version, and then the Savage Worlds version will be coming up. Yeah, but we're, we're calling that the fourth edition because that's how many were actually published. Mm-hmm. Well, we did actually sell a number of the the interim edition before the 92 edition, the, oh. the actual the third edition. But that's that's incredibly rare. I think we only did 25 to 50 of those for Gen Con one year to show what we were working towards. And it's somewhere between the second edition and, the, and then the 92 edition in quality. I remember some guy pulling out a copy of Bureau 13 that I looked at and said, I don't think Richard ever released anything like this. It was spiral bound, but it was not the spiral bound you were using. It was totally different. It was like a wire spiral bound. We experimented with a number of things. There were 50 copies of the second edition fringe where they'd done as perfect binds, which uh, disappeared. We don't know where they went, but we think somebody actually packed them and sold them out. Different types of binding experiments we did. Like FTL, we did a plastic notebook, which I really liked, but the distributors couldn't understand the concept. Also, it looked like when they printed the cover, they actually flipped it upside down when they did it, so it was actually rever- the three-ring binder was reversed. It sure was. We won't talk about that. So are you worried about people ripping off your game? The problem is, Bruce, we can't stop it. They're going to steal it until we can find a way to stop this bit torrenting. There's not much I can do unless I can track down the individual who did it. Kevin Simbita, the Palladium, had the same kind of problem and went after them, and really... It was it was a battle. You need lawyers. You need big lawyers to do this. And unfortunately, as much as you can put into it, it isn't worth it. Thousands of dollars trying to prosecute an individual for doing this. And really, you only get the satisfaction of prosecuting the individual, and he's going to do it again. The sites like RPG Now do offer watermarking on PDFs. They go through and rewrite the PDF so it actually has been watermarked by the person who bought it. So you have at least that way of finding out who was the original owner of the game that got sent out. Yeah, we were serial numbering a lot of the PDFs we were doing. But then again, it, it got to the point where when we were sending them out, it's it just, it could be, they can change hands, they could be resold on the internet, that kind of thing. So we really can't track back who's doing the uh, bit torrenting. I think what it boils down to in a lot of ways is that it's, it's not something you can stop. You might want to think about a way that you could maybe use it to your advantage, being that you can't stop it. People get it in their hands. At least you know there are people playing it and they're talking about it. But I really think that anyone who downloads a BitTorrent of a game generally are people who weren't going to ever buy the book anyway because that's usually the type that download uh, from my experience. So at least I – mean, I don't know. Just th- trying to put a positive spin on it is that at least that's somebody who's – probably playing the game, maybe playing the game, or at least have read it. And from what I've heard, people in the industry talking about people who download BitTorrents and stuff, a lot of them are just what they call collectors. They're never going to do anything with it. They never would have bought the book anyway, and it just sits on a hard drive somewhere. It's probably not quite as bad as it sounds, but that's just the, the take I've gotten on it over the years. We had an experience at Gen Con where somebody showed up at the booth with a photocopy of Bureau 13 and went, would you autograph this for me? And then everybody stopped and looked at him. And I took the copy and I said, I'll make you a deal. And I handed him a copy of the real book, autographed it for him, and said, I keep the photocopy. Don't do that again. And they called me one of the good guys for that. So I didn't get mad at him. I just said, you know, here, take a real one and show the real book. Don't show a photocopy. Yeah. I think that's a good way to play that because that guy will remember you and he'll probably tell that story and then that that it looks good on you. Talking about photocopying, have you considered about doing a print-on-demand edition, especially black and white? We've we've talked about pod editions. We've actually shot a few editions of pod editions off of the, the new books. And they look really good. I was just the first one I got in my hands. I looked at and I went, "Wow, it's color." <laughs> so, and uh, but did that run you like fifty bucks? It's getting cheaper. That's the good part. If we can get them down to about thirty-five, I think we'll produce a small number of each book and put it out as a special. Right now, it's hard because games have gone up. I was looking at this last weekend at UConn at new RPGs, and fifty, sixty, seventy dollars for a book. That's incredible. 
we're still for 20 bucks giving probably one of the best bangs for your buck in the industry. But you got to print it yourself or print whatever you want out of it. What's wrong with a black and white interior and a color a cover, Richard? We can do something like that. We could actually take most of the internals and run them into black and white or into, you know, half tones if we had to. But we're just not quite there yet. Okay. Because I know there's a lot of people out there that just simply would, uh, they told me, I'd buy your game except that I don't like PDFs. And then unless you can give me a hard copy, to which my response was, well, here, buy the game and then do it through Hulu. And they said, well, I don't want to have to go through all that. Uh, Lulu. So they, they want us, I'm, I'm sorry, Lulu. So obviously they want us to do the work for them. Yep. The books, if they're going to cost $35 for us to do them, we have to charge them a minimum of about 50 for the book. Yeah. Well, I think that the printing costs should be on top of what your normal costs are, Richard. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're re- retailing the book for 19.95, so just add the cost of printing to that, and that's what the book should cost. So that would be $45 for a book. Richard, how does your lady Melody fit into the TriTech dynasty, and has she played Friendsworthy? Melody is playing our games now. She was a true 20 player that uh, has gone over to Savage Worlds. She's basically a graphic designer and absolutely excellent. I'm sitting here pounding my head against the counter and uh, working on something, and she'll add a few things in. And This is why we're now producing an average of three pages a day. She's been really, really good for the company. Absolutely. She's been the motivational influence for about the last year. And she's standing right next to him, too, right? And she is. Is three pages a day a lot, Richard? For me? Oh, it's phenomenal. Yeah, he's usually a page-a-day person. When I went to work for TSR for about 48 hours, the page count they wanted per week was three pages a week. And I was pretty amazed at that. Things have just been flowing, which is good. The Bureau 13 Extreme book is going together faster than any other book I've ever done. And that's a lot of material. Considering the original books were printed off an Apple II and then cut and pasted on, on the blue board? Yep, those were the originals. And then the second editions were waxed together. Uh, they were done with a laser printer and a Macintosh uh, 6166, which was fun because you could do so much stuff with that. Now it's entirely electronic. It's, it's amazing what you can do. Lose a little bit of the creativity, but all in all, it's not too bad. Would you like to say hello to Melody? Sure. Here. Hello. Hi, Mel. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Here I am. So, Melody, is working with Richard a a bigger job than you originally anticipated? No comment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you still love him, don't you? Hmm? You still love him for it, though, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. We appreciate all the support you've given Richard and also the game itself because a lot of people don't realize that Melody has been really – doing yeoman work when it came time to do the actual final layout of the Fringeworthy book. We sent her the actual text in a Word document, and then she had to convert it over into PageMaker, handle all the graphics and, and do a lot of the tweaking layout issues. And she built that hyperlink directory at the, at the front of the PDF, which is a TriTac first. We have never had that in a TriTac game before, and I can't tell you how excited I was to see that. A real table of contents. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Were you responsible at all for the TriTac website? I did the TriTac website. Uh, it looks for nice. It's very, very good job. The new black one. I took the old blue one and, and recreated it from scratch. No, I like it. It's, it has like an exciting pow feel to it. I tried to get something that was still simple, but not boring and that wasn't just an out-of-the-box web page creation template thingy. Right. No, it looks great. Right. So, Melody, is Richard actually giving you time to plan your wedding with him, or uh, is he just making you just do nothing but game design? You're going to have to just pull that thing together at the very end. Oh, we're planning. Is this going to be a big LARP, or is this going to be a regular wedding? <laughs> a LARP, basically. <laughs> we're doing it at a, at a convention. We're part of the programming. We, Anybody from the con can come. We have our memberships and our plane tickets, so we're all ready. Cool. So you can't we'll cancel. No, we won't. There will be no eloping. <laughs> <laughs> I've got most of the... Um, 
invitation ready to go out. We're doing the final planning for the wedding dress and the bridesmaids' costumes, costumes, dresses. <laughs> Some part of me thinks of this as a LARP. I just can't help it. There's so much that I was not even aware of beforehand because I've been married once before, but I eloped. So. Yeah, I did it the other way around. I did the big wedding first, and then we just ran off to Las Vegas and got married by Elvis for the cool. second time. Yeah. Anyway, let me give you back to Richard. I'm having a little bit of problems with my voice today. I've had some allergy problems because of the weather. Well, All right. Well, start. thank you so much for popping in. Thank you. Okay, that was Melody. So, Richard, what is your local gaming group like, and is there a type for Fringeworthy players? No. What is the local group like? Right now, we are kind of in a desert in the Detroit area as far as gaming groups. We've got a couple. We've got a LARP group out of Oakland University. We've got the groups that show up at conventions and play. And we are currently in the middle of a campaign on Sundays. We're learning Savage Worlds. I'm learning Savage Worlds. We're playing a game called Slipstream. Basically, considering the two or three of us that are old gamers that are playing. We have about 150 years of gaming experience on top of this poor GM running him ragged. But it's a good group. We're very much a thinking group. All the games I've done, they have not been gun bunny groups. They have been thinking groups. They have been mystery solvers. They're quite a bit of fun. I'm hoping eventually to get a game going here. We have a lovely gaming room at the house. I still haven't used it yet after you know being here a year and a half. Does the Order of Leibowitz still exist? Or? The Order of Leibowitz, the original group back from the 70s that existed at Oakland University, it's actually a historic group in the, on campus, and they refused to admit it. The Science Fiction Club became the Gaming Club, and it became the Gaming Guild. But they're still running conventions, gaming conventions there twice a year, and they've just fused with Metro Detroit Gamers. So on December 5th, they're doing a Ground Zero MDG Winter Game Fest, which will be miniatures and role-playing. Well, I hope you'll demo a few games there. I should be doing one game there. My problem is it's hard to run a booth and talk to people and sell games while you're running a game. So they still have the Sunday night games? The Sunday night games have become the Saturday night Carmella LARP. Oi. Yeah, that's about the best I can say about that. Bureau 13 does have a LARP book, but that's never been seen. It was submitted to us. It's absolutely wonderful. And the designer fell off the face of the earth, and which means that we still can't publish it. But I would love to publish it. If you happen to know the person who created the Bureau 13 art book, please contact us. That was the Bureau 13 is live, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Most new players in role-playing have never heard of Fringeworthy. How did that happen that Fringeworthy kind of dropped off the map? What's being done to spread the word now to improve our market share? Well, the main thing is getting out to the major conventions, and we stopped doing Gen Con and Origin for quite a number of years, and we're hoping in 2010 to start up again. In Origins and Gen Con in 95, when we saw Magic and the other card games came out, a lot of the smaller companies either tried to shoot for the cards or ceased to exist, or they battened their hatches, and now some of them are still in existence, like BTRC, and uh, I'm not sure if, if uh, Crunchy Frog's still in existence. We paid off our bills, shut our doors, and took a couple years off to see what happened. I think there's a gaming renaissance going on, whereas the cards have died back. The RPG games are coming out, things like Pathfinder and some of the new RPGs, D20 when it came out, and especially Savage Worlds. We do a lot of indie games, too. We So we do Truth and Justice, Rhesus also. Depending on what kind of games we're running, you know, we do different systems. So to get back around to the question, though, what kind of things are you planning to do to promote Fringeworthy? I know you mentioned cons, but anything else? Well, the big thing is getting it out and getting advertising. That's also incredibly expensive right now. We're trying to be fair to everybody. We have royalties that we're going to be paying out. We have other things we have to do. Pricing alone to go to Origins or Gen Con, pretty spectacular. I think uh, Gen Con, the minimum for a table at Gen Con, is going to be about $1,400 to start. That just gives us you know, the booth and no oxygen. Wow. 
that's one of the reasons why I've just been running demos at Gen Con the last couple of years. We just discovered there's been a group that's been regularly running Bureau 13s at Origins, and we we just offered support for them. And tell them, you know, sure, we'll send them prizes and other stuff and some posters and anything else we can scrounge. This goes out to the people listening. If somebody wanted to start up a demo team, I know Cyberpunk had some demo teams. I'm friends with one of the guys who ran one of those. Do a fringe-worthy demo team where anyone who puts together a team that will go to a convention and run games, would you, you know, send them product and support? give them a good ear to, to you so that they can make this happen. Absolutely. We've done that in the past. Something Positive just mentioned Bureau 13, the gaming cartoon. Pretty surprised on that, and I laughed really hard. We're actually talking to them. We also just found the original creator who did the original Savage Worlds, Bureau 13. Oh, him, yes. He'll be joining the team. Well, that's good. He's surprised and excited. Yep. Just to make sure that people understand, Richard is saying that if you want to form a demo team, TriTac will send you support. Now, I don't think he's saying that they're pay for you to get into cons or anything like that, but if you demo games... We'll send material for you. Some certificates and that kind of thing. So yeah, contact also, them through TriTac. We'd also love for you guys to send out handout flyers on your gaming tables at conventions, advertising TriTech products. We'll be glad to give you a master or even send those to you if you give us some idea of how many flyers you need. That would be very helpful in general to all for all the TriTech products. Most game conventions have a table for flyers. That includes science fiction conventions as well. So, you know, don't limit yourself to just game conventions. If there is a science fiction convention that has a gaming track see if you can get into that one because hey, it's 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 fringe worthy it's it's definitely science fiction so richard with the advent of a lot of applications on the internet the availability of print on demand things being released in pdf formats and various kinds of electronic documents and such you've already mentioned that publishing is kind of hard to do because of the costs involved so looking forward the games that you're planning to release in the future, especially Fringeworthy. What directions do you want to take Fringeworthy, and what formats do you want to use to do so? Well, right now, it's once the Savage Worlds edition is out, I'd like to do a number of generic modules that would work with either the D20 or the Savage Worlds or whatever else you need and see what they would do. Basically, we need to do scenarios, that kind of thing, for the gamers. Would these be free or would they be uh, paid? Some of these scenarios I want to put free on the website, tritacgamers.com, and others will actually do uh, modules for them. I'd like to do some sort of an inexpensive module where you could pick up, you know, half a dozen worlds and a couple of adventures, whatever, for, you know, probably like nine ninety five. Something inexpensive that would give the gamers something that would be fun. But that's at least a year away. Right now... I'm scheduled to finish. Uh, before the end of this year, we're going to be doing Bureau 13 Extreme, Extreme. And also a shorter book, about 50 pages, of an idea called Weird Zone, which almost fits into the Fringeworthy universe in an odd sort of way. It's a little humorous. Next year is going to be the three PDFs. That'll be the Savage Worlds books. And I'd like to try, hopefully, before the end of the year, to get something a Tritac fantasy game done, a sort of a post-Holocaust fantasy book called Elfwinds done. I think you've probably seen it on the website, the, the, the rough cover. Yep. Beyond that, the project for the end of the year, next year, is the Bob Sadler, myself, in fact, everybody that was part of the original Morrow project has gotten back together, with the exception of Kevin Dockery. And we're working up the sequel to the Morrow Project, which basically is called Voyages 2079. Oh. It's a beautiful cover. We've got naval architects talking to us. We have designers. It's a lot of people just got incredibly geeked when we showed the idea for the cover. And Bob finally is working with me a little bit again. World War Three happens still in the 90s. World War Three happens in the early 2000s. And this is the recovery time afterward. Civilization has moved a lot out to sea and the islands and to better climates. Things are slowly going back into the United States and the, the bad zones. Canada, Europe. And the project's waking up and trying to do their... We're not even mentioning the Morrow Project. 
All right. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Richard? Anything about your gaming philosophy? Make your games fun. Fun is what we're we're about. You're creating stories and ideas for to make other people happy and give them adventures and make their lives bright and sunny and happy. Yeah. And occasionally kill them. <laughs> I also want to say in characters. Oh, them. Pardon me. Actually, characters. Melody says, yeah, say word characters. Characters, not the players. <laughs> okay. Thank you for your support. Hopefully we can keep this running and expanding. It's pretty amazing that a game has had a life and is still being sold after more than 25 years. There aren't many of us out there, but the idea is good enough and the people have supported it enough where it's still growing. Considering the mentions we're getting, that kind of thing, and uh, the comics and other things, that's a real good thing. Well, we have almost 500 subscribers to the podcast, and that's after only four and a half episodes. Hopefully, this will induce a lot of people to go out and actually put some paper in front of them and actually play these games. Because we would just love to hear their stories of their adventures on the Fringe Pass. Another fun part of the games, a lot of people have bought them just to read them because they're fun reads. They're almost novels on their own. We do something a little different than the other companies. We do actually do things that are readable and stories, small stories, larger stories, that kind of thing. They're well worth reading. And when people read them, a lot of the time they suddenly say, well, this might be a good game to play. Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. It's been great. We promise to keep pushing Fringeworthy because I don't think we know how to live without playing this game. <laughs> we wish you and Melody the best. Okay, you, you are all invited to the wedding in January. Everybody, uh, everybody who's listening to the podcast. Hear that? All 500 of you subscribers. <laughs> All 500 of our subscribers are invited to the subscribers. web. Yep, we'll be at Confusion. It'll be, uh, in fact, probably by the next podcast, we'll give you the exact details. <laughs> that would be great. great. We'd love to tell you about that. It's, it's well, probably going to be fun. It's uh, a lot of science fiction fans and gamers are just showing up. We're going to be doing cake and punch and short ceremony. Punch is a beverage in this case. Right, right. Well, thank you once again, Richard, for joining us here on our podcast. We really appreciate everything you've done, creating the Fringeworthy game and all the support you've given to the game over the years, the many conventions you've traveled to, and just all the support to the hobby in general. We wish you and your fiancé a, a great wedding, and hopefully everybody that you want will be there. I know that John and Otto and I are all looking forward to what you'll be bringing out in the future. And we'll be here next week, so until then... This was the Fringeworthy Podcast. This podcast is protected under the Creative Commons license. Have a Merry Christmas.